Welcome to my podcast, The Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold. And this is Episode 10, Emperor Emeritus, Part 2. In the last episode, I talked about the many accomplishments of Qianlong, but not all were positive or shed a good light on him. A good example of that is the Siku Jinshu, or the book burning. To me, I view Qianlong as this and that, various good and impressive things, followed by a but. Qianlong did this wonderful thing, but then he did that not-so-wonderful thing. Every accomplishment he did seemed to be followed by an equal fail. Perhaps I'm too hard on him. I want to praise him and compare him to his famous grandfather, Kangxi. But I also know the end of his and the Qing story, so I am being far too subjective. You all that are listening to this can judge for yourselves, if you care to. One of the things Qianlong did, following the footsteps of his grandfather Kangxi, that endeared and endears him to the Chinese, were the imperial tours of inspection. These were iconic expeditions into southern China for the purpose of inspection and connecting with the citizenry. The tours have a connection with ancient China and go all the way back to China's first emperor. Qianlong's first was in 1751. He made several during his long reign, each successful and helped solidify his connection with the Chinese and also showed his support for ancient Chinese culture. In my eyes, part of the charm of these these tours was the physical mode of transport. Inspection tours used the equally iconic Grand Canal or its Mandarin name I know I mentioned the Grand Canal in Episode 6, but not enough was said about it. It probably goes back to the 5th century BCE. The Ming Dynasty had done significant rebuilding and enhancement to it. At its best, it was a man-made navigable river from Peking to Hangzhou, on China's central east Yellow Sea coast. It was about 1,100 miles long and at least a football field wide or 100 yards wide. Certainly it was an engineering feat of incredible magnitude. Credit goes to the Chinese for envisioning 
this thing, let alone constructing it and maintaining it. I'm sure all of that was done by hand or animal. The Grand Canal simultaneously connected north to south and east to west using the Yellow and Yangtze rivers. But it would be also, and it was also, incredibly expensive to maintain. I understand today barely 100 miles of it is navigable. The Grand Canal was the main transport artery used for the Imperial inspection tours. Both Kangxi and Xianlong also did Imperial inspection tour tours to Northeast China, but it was the Southern tours that are remembered and had the most impact to their legacies. Near the end of his reign, Qianlong referred to himself as, quote, old man of the 10 completed great, great campaigns, close quote, referring to his military exploits. This is a strange reference, in my opinion, that he was making. As I will explain, some of the great campaigns he was referring to were disasters for the Chinese and him. But, have, but as some historians have explained, he was building his future legacy or myth. Today, we call that spin. Qianlong oversaw ambitious military ventures into the West, into Tibet, and Central Asia. Some of these parts that I'm talking about are now part of Russia. He also sent troops into Korea, Southeast Asia, and Taiwan. Let me talk a little bit about some of these military campaigns. In 1755, he sent his army into Central Asia to overthrow the indigenous Jungars. Then again, in 1759, his army went back into the Tianxin Mountains, in which is a primarily Turkic-speaking Muslim area, today inhabited by the Uyghurs. These two campaigns earned China the area that is now known as Xinjiang Province, which is extreme northwest China, and added an area amounting to roughly 600,000 square miles. There were also two wars into southwest China between 1790 and 1792 to put down an invasion of local rebels from Nepal into Tibet. At that time, Tibet was under Qing administrative rule. And still, there were two campaigns from 1747 to 1749 and then 1771 to 1776 into the Tibet area for control of the southwest part of China. All of these, of course, very costly in terms of personnel and treasury. In 1765, 
1769, Qianlong sent the army to the Chinese-Burma border, Southeast Asia, to gain control of that region. Three times, three separate Qing armies were sent and all were defeated, badly defeated, finally culminating in a face-saving, unofficial truce. From 1788 to 1789, at the request of the Vietnamese king, Qianlong sent a huge army into Vietnam. The army numbered approximately 200,000 men to help King Li Chu Thong reclaim his throne. Qianlong lost to the opposing side in a protracted civil war in Vietnam. The Chinese were embarrassingly overconfident at first and met little resistance in Vietnam. Eventually, however, the opposing forces in Vietnam fully engaged the Qing army, culminating in a famous battle named Ngoc Hoi Tong Da, forcing the Qing army out of Vietnam. It was a complete and utter defeat of the Chinese, and losses were very high. This battle, by the way, is famous in Vietnamese history. This was one of the military campaigns that Qianlong referred to. Finally, to end this on a more positive note for the Chinese, in 1787, Qianlong had to send his army into Taiwan. In what is known as the Lin Shuangwen Rebellion, named for the rebels' leader, anti-Qing rebels had captured much of southern Taiwan and the Chinese were forced to reclaim it. The Chinese did so, of course, but again, at great cost. Whatever one may think about these campaigns, they required incredible logistical skill, planning, and execution on an unprecedented scale. Some of these military expeditions exceeded geographical distances accomplished by Napoleon's famous march on Russia. In 1778, Qianlong publicly announced that in 17 years, by his 85th birthday, he would retire by the end of 1795. But there were signs before then that Qianlong was tiring of being an emperor, or at least the responsibility and duty of it. This is where a man by the name of Hushin enters this story. Qianlong noticed him at one of the palaces. Hushin was a Manju guardsman at one of the palaces. In 1775, Hushin caught Qianlong's attention for some unknown reason. Now, there were rumors that Qianlong and Hushin had a romantic relationship 
but I think those are only rumors. Nonetheless, Hushun rose rapidly within Qianlong's administration. In time, Hushun would gain more and more trust of Qianlong and given significant duties and powers. As Qianlong apparently grew bored with emperorship, Hushun's power and status would rise, and Qianlong increased his reliance on him. To solidify Hushun's foothold into the administration, his son married Qianlong's favorite daughter. And know this, if you learn anything at all about Hushun, his legacy is he was corrupt. At the end of his life, it was reported he had a greater fortune than what was in the Qing Qing treasury at that time. I have even read some opinions that attribute some of the Qing dynasty collapse on Hushun. While certainly his legacy is negative, I am sure his corruption had some effect on the attitudes of people at that time on the Qing dynasty. But I find it hard to believe his contribution to the empire's decline was more than minimal. Hushin's seemingly Svengali-like influence on Qianlong may have been more the fact that Qianlong was suffering some degree of dementia, as some have opined. Nonetheless, within five days after Qianlong's death, the new emperor, Qianlong's son, ordered that Hushin be arrested and executed. Toward the very end of Qianlong's reign, the English sent out trade envoys to China. Before I get into the details of this important event, let me set this up a little. Context means everything. The Europeans had contact with China for many centuries. Marco Polo already found Europeans in China in the 13th century. In the 16th and 17th centuries, priests and religious missionaries traveled to China seeking to convert Chinese. Attempts, however, to convert or indoctrinate Chinese were mainly not successful. Trade between China and Europe began as far back into the 1500s. In the beginning, it was the Portuguese and the Spanish. They primarily bought silk and paid for it with silver. The English and Dutch came later. Much of this trade, or most of this trade, was done by ocean. In the beginning, goods came into China through many seaports. Gradually, however, the Chinese limited sea trade through only one port in Guangzhou, or Canton. The primary reason for this seems to be because it was easier to collect taxes. It also made it easier for the Chinese to control the foreigners that came to China and their ship crews 
and the supplies, etc., 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 associated with the trade. It also allowed favored Chinese merchants at this port to have a near monopoly on the goods they controlled. This predictably caused price gouging for nearly everything the traders needed or what they were selling. But as Europeans' demand for Chinese tea increased, so too did Europe's, particularly England by now, need to balance their enormous trade deficit with China. One way to do this is to get the Chinese to buy more of English manufacturers. With that backdrop, I can now talk about the English diplomat trade mission to China. King George III of England decided to send a diplomacy mission to China on the occasion of Qianlong's 80th birthday. In September 1792, Earl George McCartney was dispatched by the king on a diplomacy mission to China. Over 100 people accompanied the ambassador, including physicians, scientists, family members, and several Catholic priests to ask to act primarily as interpreters. They arrived in five ships, and it took them 13 months to arrive in Peking, doing so finally in October of 1793. The English mission had five goals. Number one was trade. The enormous trade deficit due to English demand for tea, porcelain, and silk. The English wanted the Chinese to buy English manufactured goods in exchange, such as clocks, telescopes, weapons, and textiles. The second goal were ports. The English wanted more ports opened for trade. The third goal was refuge. The English wanted to buy a small, unfortified island off of China's coast where English traders could rest, resupply, and repair their ships. The fourth goal was they wanted an embassy. By late 18th century, England was China's largest trade partner, and the English wanted an embassy in Peking. The fifth was reconnaissance. Another purpose of the mission was they wanted to gain intelligence and about China and s scope it out, get a sense of what China was all about. Perhaps the mission was doomed as soon as the envoys arrived to Peking. The English ambassador was advised of court etiquette how to act in the presence of the emperor. Chinese protocol required all visitors were to kowtow, and that is, you get on both knees and bend forward until your forehead touches the ground. The English ambassador refused to do that. Instead, he would only agree to go on one knee in front of the emperor, as is customary in front of the English king. 
Ambassador McCartney did not feel Qinglong was a greater magnitude leader than his English king. Qinglong rejected all of the English requests. I cannot state for sure the Kowtow incident really had anything to do with the emperor's rejection. It is interesting to note, however, that two years later, a Dutch ambassador, Isaac Titsing, appeared before Qianlong in 1795, and he did respect Chinese etiquette and kowtowed. He apparently got a better, favorable treatment from Qianlong. The English mission has been examined by many historians from many different angles. I mentioned here because it is a perfect representation of where matters stood between China and Europe at the turn of the century and into the 19th century. The mission was, of course, a failure. But I think the blame goes both ways. Because the English were unsuccessful, they had to find another way to balance their trade deficit with China. Remember, China would accept only silver for payment, not goods or manufacturers in exchange. For Qianlong and the Chinese, they believed that Qianlong was the ruler of all nations. Qianlong mistook or failed to comprehend foreign relations outside of the normal trade and commerce relationship. To Qianlong, the English mission was nothing more than a tribute mission, and the gifts the English brought were merely tributes. Qianlong and the Chinese, unfortunately, would miss out on the future benefits of normal diplomatic relations and maybe, just maybe, take advantage of or benefit from the coming Industrial Revolution in the West. For the English, they failed to understand the Chinese attitude and psyche. Had they, the ambassador's approach or strategy with the Chinese may have been different and a different result may have followed. Both sides were too arrogant and unwilling to compromise. It was all each other's way or nothing. The small portion of the edicts that I quoted at the beginning of the last episode, I hope now make a little more sense. I mentioned earlier that in 1778, Long announced his retirement. On Chinese New Year, February 9th, 1796, Long made it official, sort of. He formally abdicated his throne just short of 61 years there as he promised. He did this because he did not want to overshadow the reign of his grandfather, Kangxi. He wanted his grandfather to have a longer reign. He announced, Qianlong announced, that his 15th son, Yongye, would be the new emperor. Qianlong was 84 years old at the time. 
Qianlong, however, never really gave up being the emperor. All big decisions still came through him. His son was emperor in name only, reduced to ceremonial, ceremonial duties and appearances. During Qianlong's time in retirement, he held the title Emperor Emeritus. Qianlong died February 7th, 1799, at 87 years of age. He's buried in the largest of the Qing tombs outside Peking that were the construction on these tombs began when Qianlong was 30. It cost the Chinese 90 tons of silver to construct, adorn, and furnish. So wow. Many ways larger in life and in legend than his accomplished grandfather, Kangxi. As much as I would love to, I would go through all of his accomplishments and failures, but even merely summarizing them would be lengthy and probably do a disservice. Like anyone else, Qianlong has to be analyzed based on the context of his times. It's too easy to say Qianlong should have done that or should have done this. Qianlong, after all, was well-educated and a seasoned leader. There is no point in second-guessing him, and I will not attempt to do so. As I stated at the outset of these last two episodes dealing with Qianlong, he was an enigma, and still is. A legend by many. He was comfortable with both his rough-and-tumble warrior Manjo identity and his seasoned polish classic Han identity. He did these kinds of things with gusto, in my opinion. In my view, China um, Qianlong brought China into the modern era. Like China is today, a multi-ethnic stew pot working together. I believe he was a good emperor and his reign a success, notwithstanding the Chinese inability to hang on to that success. However, rest assured, many events were happening, resulting either from Qianlong's actions or inactions, good and bad, or from actions outside of China, both good and bad, that would greatly affect China in the next century. In the next episode, I take a digression, and I want to talk about Chinese society generally during the first 150 years of the Qing Dynasty. I've been anxious to do this, and it's long overdue. And it's a good segue into the 19th century. Thank you for listening. It has been a pleasure.